Hey Church of the Beloved, my name is Kevin Zo and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Just wanted to say a quick thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. This week's message is brought to us by our interim senior pastor, Abe Lee. He is preaching from the book of Zechariah. So a question that you don't have to answer out loud is, that, have you ever gone to a movie or gotten, gotten so into a TV show that you, you had to to see all the behind-the-scenes stuff, you know, the, the making-of stuff, you know. When The Lord of the Rings came out on DVD, which I know is not a thing anymore because everything's streaming, but when it came out on DVD, uh, it came uh, in a box set and had all these extras and behind-the-scenes stuff. So Suzette, my wife, and I, we had to buy the box set right, to see that bonus stuff. And, and then they came up with a special extended edition with more bonus materials. And then, because they're smart, they came out with an extended, extended, special, ridiculous director's cut version and that had even more background and information and behind-the-scenes footage. And so, of course, we bought it all. I, I, I was looking at the, all our box sets of the Lord of the Rings, and I think we have more making-of DVDs than we have Bibles in our house right now. We have more Star Wars DVDs than Bibles, but that's a, that's a whole other thing for sure. Um, but as I was reading through Zechariah, that's kind of what happened to me. I was reading it, and I was like, oh, I really want to get to know Zechariah's backstory. It's just the behind the scenes of this book. And as I was doing that, I realized I would like to share that with you all as well. Uh, before we get into the main po- points that we're focusing on today in Zechariah, just give you a little bit of behind the scenes. And the first thing that, uh, as I was going through this, is to point out is that Zechariah is the most quoted minor prophet in the New Testament. If you take the time to read through this book as well, it's a pretty trippy book. It, It sounds a lot like the book of Revelation. It has references to Christ's return during the last days. And it is the heftiest of the minor prophets. It's, got, uh, it's the longest one. It's about 14 chapters long, which is not long, but it's the longest of the minor prophets. So as a result, we're, we're not going to spend uh, today going through all 14, just so you know. But the first three verses point out that Zechariah was a member of a priestly family. Uh, they, uh, the family that returned to Jerusalem with the first wave of refugees that came under Zerubbabel and Joshua. In Nehemiah chapter 12, it names Zechariah's grandfather, Edo, uh, as one of the priests that returned to Jerusalem in that first wave from uh, Babylonian captivity. And scholars also believe that Zechariah's dad, he probably died at a very early age. And so it's probably likely that Zechariah was raised at least partially by his uh, priest grandfather, Edo. They assume this because if you read through Nehemiah, Zechariah is named as the head of the family instead of his dad, Berechiah. And, and we also know that Zechariah, he was a contemporary of Haggai, who we looked at last week. And they, they were there at the same time trying to encourage the people of Judah to, to focus on rebuilding the temple. But they did it in very different ways. Um, I, I, I was wondering whether or not they would maybe talk to each other during that time. Because, you know, they're both in Jerusalem. They're both saying the same thing, really. He's saying, maybe Haggai went to Zechariah and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remind the people of Judah to prioritize God. And Zechariah's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I'm going to remind them about my trip. I'm going to tell them about my trippy visions, about how the heavens are going to be like, how the temple is a microcosm of Zion and it's all that. Haggai probably was like, you do that. You be you. Because uh, it turns out Zechariah was a, a young guy. In chapter 2, verse 4, an angel says, tell that kid, tell that young man, so-and-so. And so historians think that Zechariah was probably just a teenager when he wrote this book. 
he also gets a shout out from Jesus in the book of Matthew. Jesus is uh, taking a moment to point out that the scribes and the Pharisees uh, were a bunch of hypocrites, a brood of vipers. And they're like, Jesus, no, if we were there back in the day, we would have listened to the prophets. We would have been honoring to them. And Jesus' response is like, no, you wouldn't have. In chapter uh, 23, verse 33 to 35, this is what Jesus said to them. He said, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. Some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Basically, from the start of the Old Testament in Genesis with uh, Abel to the end of it with Zechariah, from A to Z, from, from the blood of the first innocent, in, uh, uh, Abel was killed by his brother Cain, to uh, the blood of the last. Zechariah was one of the last prophets before what's known as the uh, years of silence. Jesus was explaining to these hypocritical, venomous, viperous leaders that they were just as culpable and just as wrong as their forefathers were. Their forefathers who would not accept the prophetic word about the branch, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, but the branch that Zechariah shares about in this book. And these guys were ignoring the very branch that was standing right in front of them, Jesus Christ. See, the stain of the Old Testament martyrs was still very visible, very much visible on the current day leaders. That's Zechariah. That's who we're reading about right now. That's the author of this book. And it's like I said, it's just really interesting for me as I was going through this. Um, we're not going to go through all 14 chapters um, because it's a, it's, there's a lot in here. There are a number of visions and there's a bunch of prophecies, especially in the latter half of the book that um, haven't happened yet. They're still coming. And uh, we're not going to cover those. I will summarize it by saying this. Chapters 9 to 14, they foretold the advance of the Greek and Roman empires. They foretold Judas's betrayal against Christ. And they foretell the return of Christ on that last day. And I have a feeling there's, there's more than a few that would probably appreciate a more in-depth dive into the different interpretations of what those last days might look like. You know, there, there are eschatological, which is just a fancy word for like last days or end times. There are eschatological terms like uh, dispensationalism, uh, amillennialism, pre- and post-millennialisms, pre-tribulation, post-tribulation. There are all these words that we're not going to deal with today at all. Um, I'll tell you though, as I was reading through this, I'm thinking about whether maybe we should in a future sermon series next year, not this year. Um, but one last thing I want to mention before we dive deeper into today's focus is uh, if you're wanting or able to dive deeper into this book, I want to ask, please remember this. The Bible is written for us, but it wasn't necessarily written to us. And this particular book was written, being written to uh, Judeans that had repented and were now working towards rebuilding the temple of God. 
so that God could dwell among the people of Jerusalem again. So, so all the stuff about the future prophetic words and the day of judgment that's going to come, all of this, as you dive deeper into Zechariah, has to be read within that context to fully grasp and appreciate the impact and intent of Zechariah's words. Okay? So that's all the context, that's all the background. I just found him very interesting. But what I want to do now is share a few observations um, about this second to last minor prophet that I think, as I was studying this, I think are kind of important for us as a church. And the first observation is from chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. And let me read that. It says, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem to see what its width and its length are. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him, and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Now, the book of Zechariah starts with a bunch of visions, and it starts in verse 7 with those visions. He shares about 10 of them, right? And along the way, he's got this, like, angel guide he's, that's walking him through these visions. And for each one of the visions, Zechariah is asking, what, what is this? He keeps on asking, what are these, my Lord? And, and, and I love that because Zechariah is openly admitting that he doesn't understand what it is that God's trying to tell him. And it's not out of frustration, not out of anger, not out of worry that he asked the question. It's just a very matter-of-fact thing. He says, he's like saying, God, I know you've got a reason for showing me all this, but your ways are so beyond me, my capacity to understand. You're going to need to help me out. I don't understand what you're trying to tell me. And there's one point in, the, in, in this book where the angel guide of Zechariah is like, you know, don't you understand? Don't you get it? But there's always an explanation being given. That's something for us to consider. But in this particular passage, verses 2 to 5, it's, this is one of Zechariah's night visions that uh, he's sharing. And in this vision, Zechariah is talking to some dude who's trying to, to figure out how much wall to, is needed to protect Jerusalem and the temple. And he's measuring the old city to pull together those numbers. He's measuring what was there to build the same thing up. The second angel shows up and says, hey, don't bother with that. Because God's going to change it all. God's design for the rebuilding of Jerusalem by the refugees who are returning from Babylon was not going to be limited by what had once been. The new Jerusalem, the new temple, ultimately the upside-down kingdom was going to be so much more than they could possibly imagine. The source and the protection for this new kingdom would be and is God, I will be the wall of fire to protect my people. I will be the glory in her midst. And I read this, and the immediate thought that came into my head was, it sounds like our church. Now, this passage, don't misunderstand, is it is specifically talking uh, uh, to the promise of heaven, to the, to the upside-down kingdom that will be established when Jesus returns. So I am not saying that this passage is about us or our church. And I'm not saying that I heard like a supernatural voice or a prophetic word at all. But 
I did realize something is that this could apply to us as a church. Let me explain. We asked the folks, folks who are attending uh, our church right now to help us figure out where we should continue to meet as a con- congregation, whether it's here or somewhere else, because we don't want to neglect gathering together. We absolutely want to gather. We also want to find the location that really makes the most sense for our entire congregation as a whole, as one church. Now, on the survey, if, you've, if you haven't filled it out yet, please do. Uh, and if you haven't filled it out because you haven't gotten it yet, Stop by outside. We'll make sure that you're signed up to get our, 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 our emails uh, or go to cotv.life and just tap on the connect with us button there. But the survey asks, where would you like us to meet? And it gives four options. Wicker Park, Streeterville, River North. Those are our old campuses. But we intentionally included other. Because the truth is, I don't want to limit God. I don't want to limit God to our past because we want to be open to wherever he calls us to go. By the way, uh, on this survey, it's not just for people who are attending in person, all right? It's also for those who are not. So I'm listening, asking you all, 50 to 100 people that are watching online, um, vir- attending with us virtually. We'd like to know why. Because I'll tell you, if it's out of a fear of COVID, totally understand that. But if it's because of inertia, that's not so cool. But we want to know what we can do as a church. We want to encourage you to not neglect gathering together. So please respond to that survey as well. Because we're going to be sharing at a congregational meeting. It's scheduled for October 17th. So in a couple weeks, we're going to be sharing after service the results of that survey and talking through what that means for us as a church, as well as some other updates. So hopefully, uh, hope to record it. We will not be streaming that congregational meeting, but all are invited to join to hear more about where we're going. But coming back to the point in mentioning the survey and and, and this first point I found here is we don't want to continue doing what we've always done just because we've always done it. I don't want to keep measuring the original width and length of our church. I, I want to hold on to an understanding that trying to limit God based on our past, even our current abilities, rather than depending on God's power, that's foolishness. Trying to only look at who we were rather than depending on Jesus' transformative might is unwise. Trying to restrain the Almighty by trying to make things like they were rather than allow the gospel to make us a church of spirit-filled disciples who know, who know they are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. It's wrong. I have no idea where God's going to lead our church. What church of the beloved will look like in five days, five months, or five years. But whatever it is, we're going to do what we've been called to do. And, and part of the process of knowing what we've been called to do is gathering information, gathering insight from you, our family, our congregation, to help us actively live out gospel-transformed lives in this city. And we're going to do that by not limiting God to what we know, but rather to what he wants. And that's the first observation that I got from chapter 2. This is the second one, that we are called to be more than rituals. We are called to be righteous. In chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, this is what it says there. It says, Now the people of Bethel has sent Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Um, 
During the Babylonian captivity, there were a number of new ritual fasts that were introduced into the Jew- Jewish calendar. Okay? And for many devout Jews, it, they continue on today. There was first uh, the fast of Tammuz. Tammuz is the fourth month on the Hebrew calendar. And this particular day of fasting, it kicked off a three-week period of mourning. It, a mourning to mark the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon. And this, was, this would be followed by the Tisha B'Av, which is uh, on the ninth day of the fifth month. Av is the fifth month on the Hebrew calendar. And this day of fasting, it remembers the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. There, 100,000 Jews were killed and millions were exiled out of Jerusalem. You have another fast called the Fast of Gedaliah. This is during the Hebrew month of Tishrei, uh, which is the seventh month. And this is a day that they remember when Nebuchadnezzar assassinated him. He had help from traitors in Judea. He assassinated Gedaliah, who was the governor of Judea, and Jewish autonomy was lost then. And then there's a fourth one, the fourth day of fasting. This was uh, on the 10th month, or Tevet, the fast of Tevet. And the fast of Tevet remembers Nebuchadnezzar and the start of a siege on Jerusalem. These are all bad days. And they do this fast. All these fasts were established by, this, uh, by the Jews to, to awaken the women and the men of Judah to their need for dependence and repentance. And during this time now, now that they've returned to Jerusalem, the people we're asking a question. Do we still need to do this? And we're out. It's kind of inconvenient. I get hungry. And God's response to that question is in verses 4 through 6. He says this, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me you fasted? When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? See, God saw through the heart of the folks asking the question, and he called them on it. Because during those days of fasting and feasting, he asked, who were you really celebrating? What were you doing it for? Were you doing it for me, for God, or for yourselves? See, the fasting was intended to point them to God. The fasting was intended to allow the Judeans to remember the need for a repentant heart, to count on and to love God over all of the things, to prioritize the Almighty. And basically, God's pointing out that all that fasting and all that feasting ultimately was meaningless if it was just focused on the ritual, not on the righteousness that it was intended to engender. It was a waste if it was about going through the motions instead of transforming the heart. Verses 8 through 10 of the same chapters where God explains what these goals of fasting were intended to be. Starting in verse 8, it says, The word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. See, God is never calling us to be ritualistic. God is calling us to be and calling them to be repentant. And in our repentance comes righteousness. See, the true sign of a penitent heart is a transformed life. It is, it's a life dedicated to showing kindness and showing mercy to the disadvantaged. It is, it is to not 
actively or passively disengage when people are being oppressed, to, to give to the poor, to give to the refugee, like, like the Afghani refugees that Eugenia is helping us coordinate support for, to give to the orphans, to support the widows. And this truth was preached by Jesus as well during his ministry on earth, from, from the instruction that he gave to the rich young ruler. When he, when he asked, how do I get to heaven? Christ says, sell everything and distribute it to the poor. To the admonishment that he gave to the Pharisee who was loudly praying in the temple that he was so grateful that he wasn't like that tax collector over there because he fasted and he gave tithe. God doesn't call us to rituals. God calls us to righteousness. That's the second one. There's one last beautiful truth that I want to point us to before we... We're going to spend some time at the Lord's table through communion today. Um, is that the impact of our Savior's death and resurrection, that his actions, Christ's actions that led to our redemption, that impact was foretold by Zechariah hundreds of years before it happened. In chapter 3, verse 4, this is what it says. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. In verses 8 and 9, this is what uh, Zechariah wrote. He said, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I've set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And I know those passages can be a little bit confusing, so let me explain. The branch, first of all, this is Christ. This is our Savior. This is Jesus. This is the Redeemer from the line of David. In, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, this is what it says there to give some context. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is the branch that's being referred to by Zechariah. This, this is the branch that redeems. And that stone with seven eyes... These represent the fullness of God incarnate. As it says here in verse 2, the seven eyes. Jesus is the one who has the spirit of the Lord, is the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it's one of my favorite verses. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our filthy garments and he replaced them with his pure vestments. And then in chapter 6 of Zechariah, verse 12 to 13, it says this, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord, and it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and share shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on this throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. 
You see, the son of God, the branch from the stump of Jesse, this man, this Christ, this Savior has come to be both our high priest and our king. He's come so that he might sit to rule and reign on his throne in the temple. And here's something to to note. Did you know that in the temple, there was never a chair? There was never a seat? Because the high priest was supposed to continually be working, continually advocating on our behalf. He had no time to sit down. But the perfect priest, with Jesus' perfect act of redemption on the cross, his resurrection, he is our priest and our king. He has come to rule and to reign. This is the hope that Zechariah points to for the people of Judah who are rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And this is the hope that Zechariah reminds of, of us in this book. I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and come on up. You know, Zechariah, he started this book, I, I want to say, by, by saying that this is the word of God come to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. Now, in Hebrew, Zechariah means the Lord remembers. Berechiah means the Lord blesses. Edo means timely. So in that simple introduction, from the very start, Zechariah is telling the reader that the Lord blesses. The Lord remembers in his time. The message of hope from Zechariah reminds us to not put limits on God. It reminds us that God is looking for righteousness, not rituals, and that the perfect plan for redemption through Christ alone was set in motion before time began. Because the Lord will remember us. The Lord will bless us in his time. Thank you for tuning in to this week's COTV Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit our website at cotv.life. God bless and have a great week.